This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Karen Donfried. Karen Donfried is president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and before assuming that role just a couple of years ago, she was a special assistant to the president and senior director for European Affairs on the National Security Council at the White House. There's so much we can talk about, Karen, but I'd like to focus at least on two things. First of all, the reaction in DC or the United States of America more broadly to the Brexit vote. And then we'll talk about, if we have time, about the recent uh, Warsaw NATO summit. So let's start at the beginning, should we say. Uh, how do you think it's gone down in, in DC in particular, the decision by the British people to withdraw from the European U Union? I think the reaction in DC was surprise. You can look at EU policy wonks like me, who were following it very closely, and saw what looked like an early concession from Nigel Farage, and went to bed thinking, hmm, you know, it looks like they'll stay in, to the broader public, which wasn't following it with that level of detail, but had been lulled into the sense that at the end of the day, there would likely be a slight majority to remain. And in fact, you had a solid majority, 52% in favor of leaving. And I do think that created quite a shock on the DC side of the Atlantic. Okay, I know that the uh, US is very keen not to be seen as interfering in the politics of other countries, including the United Kingdom. Having said that, um, do you think that there's any uh, talk in DC, at least maybe, in, maybe not in government, but in the broader ecosystem of DC, about a way out? Is, in your view, or the view of the, the broader think tank community in, in DC, that, the, that Brexit may not actually happen? First, I do have to comment on your point about the U.S. trying to stay out of the domestic politics of other countries because, of course, President Obama did visit London in April. And some in the U.K. political system did say that he had no business giving such a full-throated defense of British membership in the European Union. And he did that because he thought the U.S. had real interests at stake and also because the U.S. to some extent was being instrumentalized in that campaign as an argument for, well, we don't really need the European Union because we have this special relationship with the U.S. So I do think it's an interesting example of a U.S. president engaging quite directly in a debate in another country. Then to your second point about is the balance of opinion in Washington on the side of thinking there's an exit ramp. That maybe yeah. rather than the UK exiting the EU, there's a way for the UK to sort of take an off ramp and stay in the European Union. I'll just speak for myself on this. The British friends that I speak to say disabuse yourself of that notion. You've now got a new Prime Minister in Theresa May. She was someone who was part of the Remain camp. And she herself has said, Brexit means Brexit. And by all accounts, including the creation of two new ministries headed by David Davis and Liam Fox, two hard levers, it seems apparent that the UK is making plans for an exit from the European Union. Well, if Brexit means Brexit, as you say, or as Theresa May has said, um, that would suggest that the US has lost a, a key ally in the UK in the European Union. Does it have to have a new strategy, the US, for engaging with the European Union in this new post-Brexit world we're living in now? This takes us back to the special relationship between the US and the UK. And for reasons of history, culture, language, etc., there is a special bond between the United Kingdom and the United States. And as President Obama articulated clearly when he was in London, the US sought in our interest to have the UK stay in the EU because without 
the EU's second largest economy and a voice for economic liberalism. We felt it was bad for us in terms of an economic relationship because the UK is arguably our closest military ally and a very respected partner on foreign and security policy, that also was seen as a loss across all dimensions. For the US, it's a sad day when the UK will no longer be in the EU. Now, the transatlantic relationship, of course, is larger than simply the European Union, or for that matter, NATO, which we'll talk about. And so I think the EU and NATO are two pillars of that relationship, but we will continue to engage fully in a European relationship that will now be more complicated, perhaps, because of these different memberships across organizations. Okay, well, the new UK government is taking great pains, and including the, the lead proponents who are now in government, to say that uh, we may be exiting the European Union, but we're still fully engaged in the outside world with, with full members of NATO, as you, as you know, and we want to be an outward-looking, uh, confident nation. Do, does that pass the, 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 the hilarity test in DC? In that context, I think the NATO summit that just took place in Warsaw is significant. The timing, I believe, turned out to be fortuitous because you had an opportunity in the immediate wake of the June 23rd referendum to have the transatlantic community come together. And the question was, will the headline coming out of the NATO summit be NATO summit overshadowed by Brexit? (laughs) Or will it be that in spite of Brexit, transatlantic community shows it can still act. And my sense is it was the latter that prevailed, that you had the NATO members coming together, interestingly also 28 member states, though a different group of 28 than the EU 28, and they showed that they could take solid policy decisions with regard to NATO's posture in terms of Russia, in terms of NATO's strategy south, in terms of cooperation with the EU. So I think it was important to show that the transatlantic community can act. I'm not sure if you agree, but maybe because of events taking place elsewhere, but the, the NATO Warsaw Summit seemed to be relatively underreported, which means it may, seems a rather shame, uh, to be a shame. But what, in your judgment, what are the most important elements coming out of the, of the summit? Uh, the, the communicator is very long, 139 points to be covered. Uh, in your way, from your point of view, what were the most important aspects of the, of the discussions in Warsaw? So first, in terms of the summit being underreported, I was in Warsaw, and definitely in Poland, it was not underreported. (laughs) But as an American, certainly in the US context, the summit was overshadowed by the events that were taking place in Dallas. So it's certainly true. I can't speak to the, the rest of Europe, but it is true that in the US, there was domestic news that simply took the headlines. In terms of what were the most important outcomes, The previous summit, the Whale Summit, had taken place in the immediate wake of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, and there was ongoing violence in Ukraine's east. And of course, there is still violence in Ukraine's east. So Wales was an immediate reaction to that. But at that moment, I think it wasn't clear to all NATO member states whether Russia was going to prevail in its aggression against Ukraine. And now that we're two years on, you saw the alliance agree on some robust steps to shore up its deterrent and defense posture in the alliance's east. So among other things, there was a decision to send four battalions to the three Baltic countries and Poland. 
And you could argue, well, at the end of the day, those aren't really going to defend those countries against a full-scale Russian onslaught should Russia decide to attack. But it was trying to make clear that there's unity among the 28 NATO member states and a real commitment to the defense of NATO's eastern allies. So I think the set of decisions around NATO's eastern strategy were critically important for the eastern members of the alliance and for the unity of NATO as a whole. Now, secondly, there was a focus on NATO's strategy south. There are a number of challenges facing NATO from the south, and we saw that revealed perhaps most dramatically in the refugee crisis of last year that saw, among other things, 1.1 million refugees land in Germany as a result of the ongoing civil war in Syria. So there's tumult in Syria, there's tumult in Iraq. You have an alliance that in many ways is working together against the Islamic State, though it is not a NATO mission. So we saw some decisions around that. We also saw a decision by NATO to continue training the Iraqi army, but for the first time to train the Iraqi army in Iraq. So that was also significant. But I will say that that set of measures focused on the South was not as robust as the measures toward the East. And I do think NATO still has some work to do on coordinating and consolidating NATO's 28 member states in a more coherent policy toward the South. Okay, thanks. Uh, Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, said recently, and I quote, sometimes it seems as if the EU and NATO were on two different planets and not headquartered in the same city, end of quote. Do you have any uh, confidence coming out of the Warsaw Summit in particular that the NATO and EU finally get it, that they have to work much more closely together going forward? We saw NATO and the European Union sign a joint declaration that sets out a very impressive and ambitious agenda. I think it's also important that we see the two institutions act compellingly together. There are lots of possibilities for that in the joint declaration. I was wondering in the run-up to the summit whether there would be any agreement between NATO and the EU to work together on Libya, because I think it's a very clear challenge to Europe. It is just off Italy's coast. We see today migrants gathering in Libya, looking to make that trip across the Med to Italy and the European Union. Granted, it's very difficult to help Libya at the moment because of the uncertainty about Libya's government, the very limited institutional basis that is there in Libya, but I do hope that in future we will see these two institutions try to set forward a roadmap for how to help Libya and put it on a more stable path. One last question, Karen, and maybe a rather sly last question about U.S. domestic politics. Uh, this podcast is taking place just at the start of the Republican Convention. Um, it seems that the, the two candidates, whether it's uh, Mr. Um, Trump or Mrs. Clinton uh, have a similar view when it comes to an outward-looking vision of the world in terms of uh, tr trade in particular. And they're both seen as becoming rather protectionist in different ways. Do you, do you agree with, with that uh, description? And that means that whoever gets to join, be, go in the White House uh, in January will have a more inward-looking uh, vocation and less uh, keen to engage in things like the global trade? Let me make a couple of points in response to that, Paul. First, when 2016 began, I, like many other analysts, saw 
two events that were perhaps low probability, but very high impact if they would happen. One was Brexit, and we saw the outcome of that in June, and the other is the US election. And I do think it's highly consequential who is elected in November. Now, that relates to the second point, which is will we, in either case, have a new US president who's more inward looking? The interesting thing about the populist wave we're witnessing in the US in Europe is that whether it is populism from the right in the case of Trump or populism from the left in the case of Bernie Sanders, which in many ways has informed Hillary Clinton's trade policy, both Trump and Clinton have landed in a place that is very skeptical about free trade agreements and both have said they will not support the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So on the one hand, you see that more inward protectionist approach on trade. I think if you look at foreign and security policy more broadly, I don't think you can make that conclusion about Hillary Clinton. When she was Secretary of State, we saw on several occasions that she supported a more assertive use of US power than President Obama did. Much harder to say in the case of a possible President Trump, because he hasn't spoken terribly much to foreign policy. And in those cases where he has, at times he said contradictory things. And it's hard to know whether it would be more an America first isolationist policy or whether we would see him come down more harshly against the Islamic State, for example. That's a wrap then, Karen Donfrey. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.